0: Welcome to the Net Positive Podcast, a series of podcasts on clean energy and the environment. The Net Positive is about crafting healthy communities and a sustainable world. These explorations are designed to educate and inspire. That's when we get action. Thank you so much for, for joining me this morning. I'm really delighted to have you on the, the Net Positive podcast and to talk about uh, you and your life and, and in particular to get into net energy metering and for what that means for households and, and businesses in California. But let's go, if it's okay with you, let's go all the way back. I always like to sort of figure out where somebody's from. I've done a little bit of research on you. I think you were born and raised in Michigan. Is that right?
1: Well, yeah, first of all, let me say thanks a lot for, for inviting me. It's really a pleasure to to talk with you. And, um, you know, I've, I've thought very highly of you since we've gotten to know each other, both here in Glendale. And I am surprised that you're even able to find out where I'm from. I don't know what's out there about me. But yes, I'm born and raised in Michigan. And in 2016, I switched to a job at a very small environmental law firm called Advocates for the Environment, founded and continuing today with a colleague of mine from Loyola Law School. And in that role, I had some extra time. And at the same time, I got to know Dan Brotman and got involved in the Glendale Environmental Coalition because we were concerned about the Grayson power plant. The Grayson power plant is two blocks from my house, visible from my front door. So when I heard that there was interest by the city to expand that power plant, they call it a repowering, but it was going to increase the capacity. I was very concerned. I got involved early on and have been involved with GEC ever since then. First fight was the Grayson Power Plant, but we've continued since then, and we've been expanding. I work with wonderful people, like members of the Glendale Water and Power Commission. Commissioner Flanagan comes to mind.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I, I hats off to uh, you and Dan. Obviously, I mean what the Glendale Environmental Coalition did. Uh, as a resident of Glendale, I'm, I'm very, very appreciative and proud that you and Monica and Dan and others were able to turn that repowering project, that project expansion, that power plant expansion project around. And and I'm pleased, and Dan obviously went on to become a council member. Uh, A lot of work went into that. I know you worked hard to get him appointed and now he's appointed me as a commissioner. And it's fascinating to see this utility that's, that's turned a major corner and now is very excited about a clean energy future. Um, so the hats off, hats off to you. And that just created the, the foundation for you to go to work for CALSA, which is the California Solar and Storage Association, where congratulations, Kate. I, what's it been now? Four months? You're the senior policy advisor?
1: Well, I am a senior policy advisor. And thank you very much for the congratulations. I've been there since late March, so I haven't quite turned um the, a full quarter yet, not not a, not three months, but I'm getting there. Yep. And um, there was one other person also brought on at the same time as me, a second senior policy advisor. So there's two of us. We have a policy director that we work under. Um, there are a couple of other people who are on the policy team as well. I'm just getting started there. I love it. Um, I definitely attribute my job at, at CalSA to my experience with the Glendale Environmental coalition, first and foremost, the experience that I I gained there in learning about clean energy and really my passion for distributed energy.
0: And what is KELSA's mission?
1: KELSA is a a member organization. So its mission is to support solar industry businesses and organizations that work for both solar and storage on the distributed side only. So CALSA represents companies that are focused on distributed solar and storage, not utility scale. The people who come and put a solar and storage system on somebody's rooftop. But it's not only residential, it's also commercial, agricultural, schools, a broad gamut of distributed energy.
0: The distinction of it being distributed is really important because we really want to get into net energy metering and the changes to net energy, the net energy metering rules. And of course, net energy metering started in what, 1995, originally for rest for homeowners with small, with small solar systems, less than 10 kW. And it has now become an enormous fight in the state of California. So it was last week, what was it? AB uh, 1139 was was defeated, but maybe your boss and your team there at CALSA would say that was just the first skirmish in this whole battle over this thing that we're all calling net energy metering 3.0. Am I framing that correctly?
1: Well, I think that it's certainly just one skirmish. It's not the first because this is not the first time that um, the NEM system has changed. And there were skirmishes back then in 2015 when the NEM 1 rules changed to the NEM 2 rules. There was a a large um, fight at that time to avoid some draconian changes. And the current NEM 2 set of rules works for distributed solar yep. thanks to that fight
0: thanks that. and
1: here and now we're back in the same place with the change from nem2 to nem3 which will go through there will be changes and the solar industry will feel the effects of those changes no matter what the question is how bad will those changes be will it allow the solar industry to continue rooftop solar and storage or will it essentially crash the industry? Which could happen.
0: Let me try to frame it up and see if you think this is about right. But when when net energy metering started, a homeowner like myself, I do have solar up on the roof right here above my office. Uh, if, If I'm generating more than I need, then that goes into the grid and it's exported to the grid. In fact, a typical home, about half the power that's generated through the course of the year is exported to the grid. And so when net energy metering started, I would get the full retail credit, whatever the price of power to buy. That's the amount of uh, that's the price I would receive to sell the power. Net energy metering, two in, in 2016, uh, I always think of it as, as an 85 percent solution. You're getting about 85 percent of that full retail value. And I, know, I don't know if that 85 percent is about right or Somewhere in somewhere in there, whether it's 80 percent or 85 percent. But there's that there's non bypassable by non bypassable charges that are slapped on of a cent and a half to two cents. Uh, and now we're now we're facing this situation where um, if the utilities had their way, they would probably take that full retail credit that we used to have in good old days and probably chop it down by at least 50 percent. Is that does the, do those numbers sound about right to you?
1: Yeah, well, the thing is what the utilities are proposing is to come at it from a different perspective rather than using the retail rates for NEM3. They want to give people credit for their experts based on um, a calculation of avoided costs, which they calculate unsurprisingly to not be very much. So the idea is solar generation in the home avoids some costs of producing energy elsewhere, it avoids some costs of um, energy capacity, it avoids distribution capacity, transmission capacity, avoids costs related to other operations of the utilities. So that's what the utilities want to use as a measure of the value of solar production that gets exported onto the grid.
0: And that avoided cost, you think that's, I mean, I always think of it as being more like the wholesale rate uh, as opposed to a retail rate, but, and I know that
1: it's not as low as a wholesale rate. One of the real concerns that we had with AB 1139, as it was previously written, was that it actually was going to set the compensation for solar exports at the wholesale rate, which is about three cents. It's so low that it would have pushed the payback for a solar system to over 50 years. The IOUs, the utilities are not suggesting quite that low, but what they're suggesting would push paybacks to a significantly higher level of maybe 30 to 50 years, depends on the utility, because some, you know, like for instance, San Diego gas and electric has higher rates. So when you're not buying as much from them, it takes less time to pay back your investment. But those paybacks would be far beyond the level at which people can really make a, putting a solar system on their property pencil out. So it would, it would really stop the solar industry in
0: its tracks. Yeah. And I
1: keep saying solar industry, but of course I mean rooftop solar and storage.
0: Right. I, I guess the the solar interests that are building solar farms out in the desert, at utility scale solar, uh, they're probably not saying much about this. They're they're just happily doing their own thing, right? That that they're they're saying, well, we can generate for a quarter of the cost of putting it on rooftops.
1: Solar farmers can can create their infrastructure. They can use economies of scale to put in a large solar installation at a small per unit cost, but it's sitting out there in the desert. So there are all these additional costs that if a utility is trying to say, look, we can produce utility scale solar much cheaper than people can produce it on their rooftops, home installation costs significantly more but it's stranded out there in the desert unless you add the costs to bring that electricity into where people will actually use it.
0: So let's, let's talk about some of the ways, and Brad, your, your boss, Brad Huebner, uh put on a great webinar, just talking about some of the ways that, that the utilities would like to recoup, or, or I guess they would say they would like to end the subsidy to the, to the distributed uh, energy resources by by charging those of us that have solar on our homes, by charging us uh, to use the grid. I mean, one of the ways that came up, I think, at AB 1139 were these monthly charges for solar customers.
1: Yeah, monthly charges, which would be based on the size of the system. And in addition to that, there would also be these much lower export rates. So the the combination is what would make the systems so much less valuable and make it so much harder to pencil out.
0: I know we've been working in the city of Anaheim and Anaheim has their annual cash compensation rate. That's it's under 4 cents a kilowatt hour uh, as that, as that credit, the export credit. So those were the, those were the strategies or the tactics being employed by AB 1139. But then there was also discussion of monthly true ups versus an annual true up. And so of course people are over generating in the summer, getting lots of credits and then using those credits in the winter when the sun is arcing low on the horizon. Uh, that would have a, a very significant effect uh, and maybe something we, that we would see in, in other uh, legislation. The most, the most outrageous thing that that Brad talked about was the idea that a a solar producer, a homeowner that's producing, would actually be charged a kilowatt hour fee for those solar kilowatt hours that are that are generated on that home or on that business.
1: Are you, are you talking about the fee for the self-consumption?
0: Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. And, and so obviously when you're uh, when I'm at home and I'm using kilowatt hours, uh, then I'm avoiding buying from the grid. So inherently I'm I'm getting the retail rate for that. But as I understand it, yes, there would be a kilowatt hour charge for those, for those kilowatt hours that, I, that I'm generating myself. And then another whole idea is this buy-all, sell-all strategy that you would have two meters and you're buying your power. Uh, you're buying all of your power from the utility at a retail rate. And then you're selling your power at whatever it is, the, 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 a wholesale rate or the avoided cost rate or whatever it is. But in that way, the utilities are, are uh, compensated for for these, dis- in, in their view, for these distributed resources.
1: It, to it's- me, that idea is a perfect example of the utilities uh, framing of what this is all about. And rather than it being an, a ratepayer issue to the utilities, it's really an issue of, Distributed solar cutting into their business, and they're trying to take that business back. Right? Anytime you or I produce our own solar and use our own solar, we are not involving the utility at all. Utility wants to get involved because their business is reliant on people using more energy. And when people use less energy from them, then they lose out. We win and they lose out if we use less energy. One interesting comparison that CalSA has been trying to point out because it's an important one is home solar consumption is very similar to home energy efficiency. It reduces your energy usage as far as the grid is concerned. It's, it's your own solar production is the same as going around and turning off all your lights and unplugging your, your refrigerator, or, you know, obviously getting a like an energy star refrigerator, cutting down your energy. Nobody is talking about dinging people for reducing the amount of energy. That's a, that's a plus. So why is it that using solar and avoiding pulling energy from the grid has been turned into a minus. The reason is because it disrupts the utilities business model and utilities want to be able to continue to charge people for energy that they produce and deliver. And we're a disruptor. Rooftop solar is a disruptor for that.
0: It's really, that's really well put. I, I love that analogy. And uh, you know, I was the director of energy efficiency for the city of Los Angeles and we actually had the same resistance. It was all about lost revenues. I, I remember presenting our portfolio of programs. I was very proud of our portfolio of efficiency programs, a uh, big multi million dollar package to the board. And the board member saying, Well, wait a second, isn't this going to cut into our sales of kilowatt hours and our lost revenues? And, and so I think that you're right. Inherently, um, we're butting up against an industry, we're a disruptor. In my consulting, I've always advocated utilities getting into the solar business. And if people want solar, sell them solar. If they want efficiency, sell them efficiency. If they want coal, firepower, I guess I guess sell them that. But um, you're right, there is the, we're really still stuck in that, um, that split incentive uh, that, the, that the utilities are, are still in the business, despite performance-based rate making, they're still in the business of bringing in, maximizing revenues. And we we are disruptors what are some of the values um, of distributed solar to a community or to a region
1: if you just think about solar generation itself when people are generating solar on their rooftop if listen so i'll use me as an example i have solar on on my roof i don't use that much during the day when the solar is producing a lot of it is leaving my house where is it going its electrons they flow to the next place that needs it so that means that my neighbors are using that excess electricity which means that there's less load that's going across the transmission grid that's going through all the distribution grid it's reducing the the wear and tear on all of that infrastructure so that's one of the, the big advantages is producing energy close to where it's used reduces the need for all of that upkeep and infrastructure development. Now another advantage of having locally produced energy, especially when you have storage tied with it, is it gives resiliency. It gives the opportunity to shift load, in order to help the grid avoid large peaks and even out the the shape of the the load curve. All of that is very helpful. And it also gives the opportunity for people to have backup power. It provides greater resiliency to the grid. So all kinds of benefits to the entire grid, not just to the consumer
0: think you would also add that lots of jobs in our communities, uh, training opportunities for our youth to get into this clean energy space. Really, This is a
1: really good example because, you know, clean energy jobs, solar installation, storage installation jobs, these are not jobs that can be sent overseas. These are definitely local jobs and they're skilled jobs.
0: Well, let's go back to the fight or the skirmish or the war or whatever we're going to call it, the the challenge that we have in front of us that utilities are dramatically trying to limit distributed energy generation, and of course, consumers are wanting it more than ever. How can people get involved and be helpful? I know that you've been having all sorts of webinars and there's lots of awareness going on, but how do we we elevate this?
1: There's an organization that is of and for solar consumers that's called the Solar Rights Alliance. And that's a really good website for people to go to if they want to educate themselves about these issues and if they want to get involved. CALSA also has its own involvement and CALSA.org's website um, gives links to information about the rooftop solar NEM fight, it's another good opportunity to to find out what's going on. Now, you mentioned a little bit ago about the the bill AB 1139, that has been put on the inactive file for now, which means that it's no longer being considered in the the current legislative session, but it could come back in January or another bill could come back But in addition, right now, at the California Public Utilities Commission, there is the NEM-3 proceeding. That is moving forward as we speak. There's going to be filings over the next couple of months. And then starting in September, the commission is going to be considering the information before it and reaching a decision, which we think would come out in about November. If people want to be involved, it's useful to um, get engaged in that process and find out what kinds of assistance from the public, the advocates for distributed rooftop solar and storage, are asking for. And again, I would say the Solar Rights Alliance is going to be a good place to go for that information.
0: And so, this this change could happen at the legislature in Sacramento or at the PUC, it's already in play at the PUC. I guess a bill could come out of the legislature that would that would force the PUC, that would preempt, that would force the PUC to do something. But, but if no bills come out of the legislature, we'll probably have the PUC uh, enacting a new ruling.
1: The legislature would act by telling the PUC what to do at various levels of prescriptiveness. AB 1139 was quite prescriptive there were some pieces of it that would not have gone into effect if the PUC acted by a certain deadline. And there were other pieces that would have gone into effect no matter what. One of the interesting things about AB 1139, one of the arguments for why it was needed, was because the PUC has not acted. But that's simply not true right now, because the PUC is actively engaged. They opened a proceeding in 2020, It's proceeding apace, and we do expect a decision to happen, most likely before the end of 2021, and it would probably be effective 2022. So there are changes on the horizon for sure, absolutely. And there's a broad range of potential proposals. CALSA has a proposal that is most protective of both the solar industry and specifically low-income solar initiatives. The utilities have a proposal that's least protective of the solar industry, but also of low-income solar programs, because the cost of putting on solar would increase so much that those low-income programs would lose the ability to make sense financially and it would no longer be possible to pursue them.
0: And I guess uh, the story is, is maybe even a, a little bit grimmer or bleaker in that we've got this uh, called a full-on assault uh, on net energy metering, uh, which could really decimate an industry as, as we've talked about. But at the very same time, we have the investment tax credit uh, slated to, to step down at the end of 22. And then dramatically after that, and then we have uh, for the energy storage we have the self-generation incentive program, the s which which funding is going to sunset, or we expect it to sunset also. So these we've got three major factors that are combining to uh, spell significant doom to an industry. Uh, without the voices that you're talking about, without the Solar Rights Alliance and and CalSA and others to make sure that we maintain this. I I like to say that we need all forms of solar. We need the utility solar. We need distributed solar that's owned by individuals. We need virtual power plants that are owned by utilities of solar systems and storage systems. We need community solar. We need all to reach our climate goals is is my view.
1: I agree with you 100% about needing all forms of solar. The difficulty here is that... As individual regulatory agencies or legislative bodies think through what they think should happen, they're doing it in a rather siloed way. And there's a lack of coherent, cohesive, overall thinking through what are our goals? What do we need to meet those goals? and put all the pieces in place. So you're absolutely right. If the ITC sunsets, if SGIP funding goes away, if NEM credits are reduced in value so that it's much harder to put rooftop solar on, the ability of California to reach its climate goals by the deadlines the state has set is going to be so much impaired. Is really worrisome. We really don't want to see that happen. We really need to be going the other direction. We need. We need to get. We need to make it easier to put solar on homes and businesses and government buildings. Not harder.
0: I remember. I remember Governor Jerry Brown, you know, announcing 16 gigawatts of local local generation. He called it local, and at the very same time, uh, here's the PUC chipping away, and here are the utilities chipping away on 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 the pathways to making that possible. Well, well, tell me this now. Um, I'm so glad that you're at Kelsa. It's fantastic. It just seems like it's perfectly aligned with your your skills and your passions and what we need as an industry. Uh, EcoMotion is a member of CalSA, as you know. Um,
1: I do know that. It's wonderful.
0: How are you? How are you maintaining some balance? Uh, how are you sustaining your own sanity and your own health? You said you're not that much of an outside person, but you get out into the garden, but What is it that you like to do when you're not uh, thinking about legislation?
1: Actually, a lot of my free time is spent doing Glendale Environmental Coalition things. So I am tracking the clean energy projects here in Glendale and talking with my colleagues about various ideas for trying to expand clean energy. You know, I said earlier that I really believe in distributed energy, a large part of The reason why is because here in the L.A. Basin, we're so transmission constrained, we know that we have to have local energy. So I think about that. Um, I have started to watch the meetups for the Distributed Energy Task Force, let's see, Distributed Energy Resources Task Force, which started in New York but has developed some nationwide following and I'm one of the followers. So I watched a program a few months ago with the uh, CEO of Holy Cross Energy, uh, energy cooperative in Colorado, which I assume, you
0: know, I just had dinner with Brian Hannigan a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Perfect. Yeah. He's my, he's my GM out there.
1: (laughs) So he's a, he's, he's a very articulate and inspiring. Yeah. Um, speaker on um, energy policy and ways to integrate distributed energy and ways to help the energy customers, which I love. I also love cooperatives. Uh, Actually, I I think I mentioned, right, when I was at University of Michigan, I was in the housing cooperatives there. So what else do I do? I, I love to cook yeah. And I, I enjoy eating what I cook. And what, I what what
0: eating. is what would be a specialty out of the uh the Unger House?
1: Um, we do soups. The last soup that I did was a cauliflower potato celery soup. Mm-hmm. And there are variations on soups with leeks and potatoes and cauliflower and parsnips. Uh, yeah, I really enjoy pasta and there's arugula in the garden or there's basil in the garden. So I'll bring that in and put it on some pasta and simple stuff.
0: You you have wet my appetite. I I am salivating and it is close to lunchtime here. So I guess it's, it's lunchtime. Little, but uh how great. Well listen, thank you so much for what you're doing at Kelsa, for what you've done here in Glendale with the Glendale Environmental Coalition. And just your yeah, just your passion and your uh your drive. It's very impressive to me. And it's it's so important for society that uh, we celebrate people like you and we try to clone people like you. Uh, so <laughs> we...
1: <laughs> so, Actually, I've been saying I need a clone of me too. So if you come up with a way, send one over.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very good. Okay, Kate. Well, thanks so much for this interview and have a great rest of the day.
1: Well, Ted, I'll just take the opportunity to say you impress me a lot. It's wonderful to have the opportunity to talk to you today, but I also just love the opportunity to anytime we get on a Zoom together and I get the chance to hear your thoughts because you have a breadth of experience and I really, I learn a lot from you and I really appreciate that. And it's nice of you to recognize me because I feel like I'm, you know, definitely at baby steps compared to you. You've been involved in clean energy and sustainability for a long time.
0: Well, thanks for, thanks for all that. But back at you. Uh, let's all just carry on. We're, we're making it happen. It's, it's, it's a dream come true in the, the big picture as we look. Uh, I am just so thrilled with where we are as a, as a society. We've got a long way to go, but we have, just like Glendale, water and power has turned this major corner. Holy Cross, you mentioned Holy Cross uh, Energy Cooperative, now Holy Cross Energy. When I lived in the valley, in the Roaring Fork Valley, we were buying coal from MEAN, Municipal Electricity Association of Nebraska. We were largely coal fired. And now Brian just told me the other night, he just hit 50% on renewables. So anyway, Kate, thanks again. I really appreciate it and have a great afternoon.
1: Thanks, Ted. Enjoy your lunch.
0: That's it. Thanks for tuning in to this edition of The Net Positive. We'll see you next time.
1: Thank you